Hi Warren, it's Kerry. Thanks for a great podcast. I've got some follow-up questions from your interview with Finance Ghost a few weeks ago. He spoke about doing some of his own research into companies he might want to invest in. Could you please give us some pointers about what we should be looking at and what resources we should use to find this information? And secondly, could you please give us a little bit more information about how ETFs work? Is a particular ETF limited to a list of companies which they must invest in and then they use math formulas to change only the percentage holdings of the different companies? Um, or have I misunderstood that? And how broadly speaking do these math formulas work? Or perhaps are there different mathematical models which underpin different ETFs and which would explain the difference in the performance of two different ETFs which invest in the same market, like two em emerging markets ETFs, for example? And uh, do you have any advice about how one should choose between two ETFs which appear to invest in more or less the same markets? Uh, thanks again for a great show. Cheers. Gee, Kerry, uh, two fantastic questions. So, so firstly, just to, to talk a little bit more about uh, ideas and pointers on how you buy your own shares, what you should be looking at, and, and then also just what, what sort of resources you can use to, to, to help you do your research. And then the second is, is explaining a bit more about exchange-traded funds and especially uh, how, how they work and, uh, and then the benefits of, of, of one versus another when they look very similar. So, so let's kick off on on buying shares. I think, uh, firstly, Kerry, this is uh, uh, you, you know a, a lifetime of knowledge topic. In other words, uh, you know the, the answer I'm going to give you now is just some pointers. But but really, uh, you, you know there are some really bright people that have been studying how to buy shares for decades. You know Warren Buffett being a, a case in point, uh, and and they're forever learning and forever evolving um, their own style, their own philosophy. So so I just want to say that I think there are multiple different ways and different approaches to how you choose shares uh, and and certainly it's very hard to argue that uh, you, you know one one person or one philosophy is you know way better than another i think it's uh, you know it's too arrogant for people to say you know they they've got the the, the absolute recipe uh, and then secondly I always want to uh, remind people that you know Sir John Templeton uh, was a very famous fund manager, um, you know, stock picker many many years ago, and and there is a company named after him called Templeton Asset Management and uh, or Franklin Templeton, and he said at the end of his very long career that he he thinks he did really well. You know, he made a lot of money for himself and investors by by choosing shares, and he believes that he was accurate with 51% of his uh, share picks. In other words, out of every 100 shares that he chose over his career, he, he chose well with 51 of them, and he made mistakes with 49. So so I think the, the, the comment there is just to understand that actually when you choose shares, uh, the, the odds are that you're not going. Most of the shares you're going to choose are not going to do well for you. It will be a, a very small handful that will deliver the most, uh, the most of the return, and others will what well, might give you an average return, but but the bulk of them will actually lose money. So so I think it's just important to know when you go in. We always have to be humble because the, the markets are always, uh, you know, ever changing, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the very definition of unpredictability. You know, anyone who believes that they can read markets and can read shares and can do that consistently over a long period of time are, um, is, is going to be proven wrong time and again. And I won't be the person proving them wrong. The market will do that uh, all on its own. 
So, 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 do I still think that it's worth buying individual shares? I, I think certainly in the in the podcast with with Finance Ghost, we, we made that point that that there is a um, there is a possibility of of doing better than the market uh, if you buy shares. So, so certainly I, I I do think there is some merit in it. I do also think that it's not for everybody. You know, out of out of every ten of us, maybe three people, uh, you know, will have the time, the inclination, uh, the fortitude, in, especially emotionally, to to be good share pickers, and and the rest of us, you know, the other seven out of uh, out of ten of us need to be clear that we might not have the skill, the time, or the the ability to actually choose shares, and and then it's much better to buy uh, an exchange traded fund or a unit trust and and outsource that responsibility to to someone else. So. After that lecture, Kerry, I think uh, if I were to buy shares, the, the thing that I'm looking for is I'm looking for a company that has a sustainable long-term business model that, that, where, where it has the advantage over its competitors and it has the ability to, to control its price in some way for the service or the product that it sells. So, so to give you a very, uh, a very clear example is uh, if you think about Apple, you, you know, if you look at uh, the, the, the Apple iPhone, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an Apple iPhone convert. I've owned you know, iPhones uh, since they were launched. And I know for a fact that when I buy the phone, it's more expensive than the, than the, you know, the comparative uh, Android phone. You know? and, and even if it's a Samsung, for example, uh, the iPhone is generally more expensive, uh, and and truthfully, I'm I'm not technically savvy enough to know <clears throat> the difference between the two phones. Certainly, pr- probably uh, I, I would get equal use out of both of the phones. But I am committed to to the iPhone because I believe in the quality of the phone. I, I know the ecosystem of Apple; it it works for me. And and so the fact that Apple charges a premium for its product, uh, I'm still willing to pay it. So it tells you that Apple have a pricing power over over um, over their phones and certainly over their Android competitors. Whereas you know someone launching an Android phone now, you know a new company might not be able to charge a premium for the product, even if they actually have the best phone in the market. Uh, and, and so that's pricing power. So important when I'm looking at a company, I want to know that they've got some sort of ability to to keep uh, earning money and to keep earning money at a profit compared to their competitors, even uh, you know even when markets go down or, or economic cycles change. So so pricing power is important to me. I, I also like to know that I'm buying companies that have very strong balance sheets. In other words. They don't have a lot of borrowings. Ideally, they actually shouldn't have any borrowings, and and that they they have the ability to to generate a lot of cash from their from their business in a month uh, or a quarter or a year. Um, and I don't mind companies sitting on on decent amounts of cash while they are um, while they are profitable and and you know generating good sales. And the reason for that is. When when an economy goes through a tough time, I mean, we all think about COVID now. You know, the companies that didn't borrow any money before the time, and companies that were sitting in a lot of cash, were able to get through that difficult time much more easily than their competitors who might have been borrowing and and had you know very bad balance sheets. Those kinds of companies, if they have a tough time, you know, whether it's six months or a year might find themselves in deep financial trouble and in fact might go out of business. Whereas a company that's got a strong balance sheet that's you know, got some pricing power, it can get through very difficult times much more easily. In fact, it might actually be in a position where it can use its cash to buy competitors or, or to buy market share from, from competition uh, in, in a difficult time. 
So for me, that's my second pointer. I like I, I like very strong balance sheets. And then thirdly, and that's very very much a personal philosophy, is I like to invest in management teams that that have significant shareholding in the company. I'm not a big fan of professional management teams that you, you know that earn big salaries and fat bonuses, but actually don't really care about the share price of the company over the next de- ten and twenty years. So so for me, um, you know, I like I especially like family owned businesses where where, where the family uh, you, you know are are significant uh, shareholders in the company and their long-term financial interests are aligned with the interests of other shareholders. So, so for me, that's a, a really big advantage. Um, I don't buy all the corporate governance gump of, of saying that you know the 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 founder or the or the you know the the big shareholder cannot be the the chairman or CEO of the company because of 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 a separation of powers. I think that. Uh, a CEO who is a big shareholder in a company like and Warren Buffett's another great example of this, who stays invested in the company and runs that company for his own interests as well as because he's a big shareholder, will, will be doing that for, for other shareholders as well. That, that's a simple alignment of interests. In South Africa, we've got a very good example of that of, with the Mouton family running PSG or the you know you know the um, the, the Rupert's running uh, um, Remgro you know that that for for decades you know that they've been running those businesses for for the interests of the family which are 100% aligned with the interests of of the, the shareholders so i love that idea i think uh, corporate governance people who who resist that uh, are are definitely lawyers and accountants and and the like and have no concept of what it means to be an investor so that would be my main points around what to look for in a company. There are lots and lots of others, but I think also key here is I want to buy those companies when they are trading at a discount to their to their real value. In other words, when markets are down and everybody's fearful, that's the time that I want to be buying those shares. I don't really want to buy those shares when they've you know been shooting up you know month after month for a couple of years and the, and the share price might be at a real big premium to to its real value. You know, and I think again. Uh, using Apple as an example, you know there was a time, let's say September October, uh, 2021, where, where the share price was just really high. You know, nothing to do with the actual company. You know, the company was being well managed by a very strong management team with a great product line, but the, the investment market had pushed the share price too high, and then you know by November it started to fall over, along with all the other tech shares. Um, and I think you know by, by kind of you know mid 2022, it suddenly looks at much better value again, and then I would be a buyer of those shares. So I think that's my other comment about buying shares is your 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 uh, timing to go into the share is important but then you know buy that share with the plan that you hold it for the next you know 10 20 30 years if you can then, then let's talk about exchange traded funds so uh, I'm, I'm conscious that we were running out of time on this already fantastic question but uh, let's say you you look at you're looking for an exchange traded fund that invests in the in the world markets in the world stock market uh, there will be different versions of, of an index that the, that the exchange traded fund is is tracking so let, let's just talk about uh, uh, let, let's say the MSCI uh, World Index. Now, MSCI is a company, and they create an index of of of, uh, of the world stock markets. So that the way that they calculate that will be different, for example, to S&P, uh, Standard and Poor's, who might also have a world index, but but they would use a slightly different methodology for for, for replicating the world stock markets. So it is important uh, to, to look at that when you're buying an index to say. Let me understand uh, what it is that, that that this index is actually trying to replicate, so so that you understand what you're buying. And and you know, MSCI World Index, as an example, is actually only 
all the, the, the value of the stock markets of the developed economy. So it's got nothing to do with emerging markets. So if you're buying that, you know, although it says world index, you need to go and read up a bit more about it, you know, and you can, you can Google it. There's lots of, uh, lots of information available on that uh, to explain what the world index is and then also how, how MSCI will calculate that. And then you need to go and look at the, 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 S, the, the, the S&P version of that, the Standard & Poor's version, and see how they calculate it because they might have one called the All World Index, for example, which might include uh, um, you know, developed and emerging markets, and that might be what you want to buy. So, so I think it's important to understand that exchange-traded funds, are, they're, they're, they can be very simple. In other words, the, the, if you look at the top 40 index in South Africa, all that you're buying there is the, the 40 largest companies on the JSE. There is no real uh, algorithm or something other than a mathematical calculation to say, take the number of shares available uh, you, you know, for, for a particular company, multiply, multiply it by the share price, and uh, if that becomes the biggest company in the stock exchange, that will be the biggest holding that you will have in your top 40 index. And then you go to number two and three and four and, until you get to the 40th biggest company. And, and the index uh, managers there will, will be doing that calculation. They don't do it every day or every month. They will, they will rebalance that index, uh, uh, you know, sometimes every month or every quarter. But they certainly won't be doing it every day. And, and all of that happens automatically. So when you're buying the top 40 index, you don't need to worry about uh, chopping and changing underlying companies as their values are changing. That will be done for you by the index provider. Um, unfortunately, as time has gone on with the exchange-traded uh, fund market, they have become much more complicated and much more varied and diverse. So, so there are now many thousands of different kinds of exchange-traded funds. So you can find some that are actually uh, being launched by active managers who are buying and selling shares in an ETF. And you can find others that own uh, balanced portfolios of assets that are, you know, include cash, bonds, property, and shares. And you'll find ones that are very specific on gold or very specific on renewable energy or, or ESG investments and the like. So, so I think it's, it's difficult to give you kind of a pointer to say, you know, that these are the ones you should look at. I, I would say I love broadly diversified ETFs. So buying the, you know, the, the whole world stock market is, for me is generally preferable to, to saying that I know that I should buy the Japan ETF because that's the one that's going to do well in the next decade. The answer is I don't have a clue what Japan's going to do in the next decade compared to America. So I'd rather buy the world index. And when I'd make that decision, what, what I'm really looking at is, is the index provider or the ETF provider, um, you know, big? And is the ETF itself, uh, does it own a lot of assets? Because if it does, the costs of running that ETF are going to be relatively low for me because, you know, there are fixed costs when you when you have an ETF. You know, the, the audit fees and the custodian fees are generally fixed fees that the banks are charging the ETF provider. So if it costs $100,000 of audit fees and those kinds of things a year, uh, that, that fee can be a huge percentage if your fund is only a million dollars in size, but it's a tiny percentage if your fund size is a billion dollars. So, so you're generally looking for bigger, uh, bigger ETFs, I think, uh, where, where the costs of running the ETF are very low. So, so that would be my view, and I would stay from I would stay away from very specific, very sectoral ETFs or you know very active ETFs because I'm not convinced that I know what's going on inside there. And then uh, you know I, I could be surprised by a market event where I, where I suddenly see a twenty or thirty percent drop in my portfolio, and I was only expecting a five percent drop. I hope that helps, and thanks for the question, Kerry. Thank you for listening to Honest Money. If you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Warren Ingram. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Chat soon.